How's everybody doing? Good, thank you. At the nine o'clock, I was like, how's everyone doing? And there's like one guy in the back corner is like, yeah. You know, it's, it's like, all right. And it was an uphill battle, you know, for 45 minutes. Um, but um, no, it, it ended up being okay. Uh, Hey, if you've never been to the church before, um, this is only our second week in this room. Are you guys still getting used to it, or is everyone, like, relatively comfortable? <laughs> okay, now you're making me think of the 9 o'clock service again. Okay, so, uh, no, um, we just moved into this room last week. We, at this church, something that, that we kind of pride ourselves on is we teach whole books of the Bible. We've been in the book of Hebrews for, gosh, I guess a little over maybe a month and a half, something like that. We're in chapter 5 today. We took a break last week because it was Resurrection Weekend. That's what we call Easter weekend around here. Resurrection Weekend, of course, we talked about the, 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 the life and the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the week before that, our friend David Young from North Boulevard Church of Christ came and spoke and, and uh, taught on Acts 2, and that was, that was really good. And then before that, we were in chapter 4, so it's been a couple of weeks. And uh, I'll, I'll kind of recap that a little bit so we kind of remember where we are. There's nothing super groundbreaking um, about the book of Hebrews. By groundbreaking, I don't mean that derogatory. I mean, there's nothing complicated. It's not extremely hard to understand the book of Hebrews. And when you're studying the Bible, if you're a new Christian especially, or if you're not a Christian yet and you're just kind of interested, uh, I typically tell people to go to the book of Matthew. I think that's just a good place to start finding out who Jesus is, the life of Jesus, and um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's just a good place to start. What I found in Hebrews, though, in studying it so far, is it's also a, 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 it's probably a good uh, complementary book to the Gospels. And the reasons why is it gives a lot of good history of the Old Testament, and it also kind of builds the foundation of Christian thought, basically just laying the, the groundwork of Jesus is superior to um, all the teachers in the Old Testament. Jesus is superior to angels. In this chapter, we're going to talk about Jesus is superior to the high priests of the Old Testament, which was essentially like their pastoral figures. And so it sets a good kind of a bedrock, a foundation of the fact that Jesus is it, that he's the most superior thing ever, okay? And so it kind of talks about what Jesus has done. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we were in chapter 4, it ends with a very, very famous scripture at the end of chapter 4 and verse 16. And what it's essentially talking about is this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That when we approach Jesus Christ with an open heart and an open mind, what I mean by that is when we approach a relationship with Jesus saying, God, whatever you have for me, whatever this looks like, not my expectations, but whatever you want out of me and whatever you want this to look like, if we approach Jesus with that kind of vulnerability we find rest. Now, this, isn't, this doesn't mean we sleep a lot when we become Christians. When I talk about rest, it means that contentment, that peace, that fulfillment that only comes by having a relationship with God. We find that in Christ. That's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, okay? Today, it's going to flow right from chapter 4 into chapter 5, when this book was written, when all the Bible was written, it wasn't broken into chapters, so the ideas bleed into each other, and chapter 4 bleeds right into chapter 5, and we're going to talk about this, that Jesus is the perfect leader, but we must choose to mature in our relationship with Him. We must choose to get closer to Him. It's not going to happen by accident. We're not going to wake up 30 years after becoming a Christian and being like, wow, my relationship is really good with God all of a sudden. That's not the way it's going to work. It has to be intentional. It has to be done on purpose. Just like any relationship takes effort and work, it's the same thing with Jesus Christ. 
We have to give Him our time, give Him our attention, and when we do, we mature in Him. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about today. I'll just be straightforward with you. It's pretty nuts and bolts today. Uh, The last part of it gets a little sassy. Uh, There's very sassy parts of the Bible, and uh, we're going to read one of those today. But it's in the last little part. Um, I remember when I said Jesus was sassy one time in a scripture when I was teaching Matthew, and I got emails for weeks, you know, what's your theological basis of that? And I'm like, anyways. um, So sometimes the Bible just gets a little sassy. When Jesus called a woman a viper, eh, it's sassy, right? Anyways, and he called Peter the devil one time. So um, anyways, there's a sassy part in Hebrews chapter 5, and sometimes we need sassy parts of the Bible. Sometimes we need our toes stepped on, and we'll get a little bit of that today, okay? But it's nuts and bolts. Pretty simple stuff, and um, we'll dig into this. Everyone okay, right? If you don't know where Hebrews is, if you have a Bible, it's in the New Testament right before the book of James towards the end of the Bible. You should have also got a notes handout. It has pretty much everything I'm going to say in it, and there's a little thing inside of it for version. If you have a smartphone, you should check out version. It's free, and if you click on the bottom right button and then events, all that's on here is on your phone. All the scripture, all the notes, Prayer requests, all that stuff is on there. It's a pretty cool little thing you can do, and it's free. So, okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to get into chapter 5, and uh, you guys can go out and enjoy the, the nice sunny day that we're having today. Okay, let me pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I just pray that you keep your hand on us today, Lord. God, I pray that everyone in this room, um, people that are believers, strong believers, and people in this room, God, who may not even know what they believe yet, or maybe they're here just because they're uh, intrigued, Um, God, I pray, Lord, that you just touch our hearts today. Father, I pray, Lord, that we're blessed by your word, not by my word, God, but by your word, that we're blessed by it and that we grow from it. Father, we also want to pray for every single church in our city. We pray that you bless the leadership. We pray that you bless the congregations. Help your kingdom to advance and to grow through the other churches in our town. And help God just, just, I, I pray that you're pleased with the church of Murfreesboro. We love you, God, and we lift you up. Be with me today. Help me teach your word with accuracy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter 5, book of Hebrews, New Testament, right before James. I'm going to read a little bit, and I'll do my best to, uh, to break it down. Okay, here we go. For every high priest taken from men is appointed in service to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray, since he is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as for the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. I'll tell you who that guy is. In the same way, the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father, also said in another passage, you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And I'll explain to you who that character is here in a second. So what this chapter is focusing on is this, is that Jesus is our high priest. Again, that's a fancy way of saying a a pastor, a spiritual leader. Now, we talked about this a little bit in the last chapter, that Jesus is our leader. He's our example. He's our mediator between us and God. We really talked about that last week, the whole resurrection story, that Jesus kind of closed the gap between us and God. Now, this chapter explains the functions of a high priest. Now, here's what they are. It's very, very simple. The, The high priest in the Old Testament did these things, and this is essentially what Jesus did. They represented us before God, 
They were chosen by God to serve the people of God and to make sacrifices on behalf of other people's sins. So essentially, if I was the high priest and you were the Jews, I would make sacrifices to God for your mistakes and for mine as well. That's the role of the high priest in the Old Testament. The high priests were also chosen not just because they were firm in the faith, they were also chosen because they were gentle, they were gracious, they had to be. Whenever you're dealing with a large group of people, you have to be patient, gentle, and gracious because people are just broken. People have issues, people have drama, and they have things about them that are, that are frustrating at times. And so the first high priest was a guy named Aaron a very righteous, good man. He had mistakes. We're going to talk about one of those here in a second. He had mistakes, but he was a godly man that had faults and he could sympathize with everyday people. Pastoral figures, and I'm not trying to talk about me at all, we should be able to relate to, to, to most people. We should be able to be gentle and gracious with most people. We share a humanity. I'm going to get off. It's the 11, so I got like unlimited time, right? We're going to be here till like three today. So anyways... <laughs> Where we've made a huge mistake in Christianity in the United States is we've somehow elevated pastors and pastoral leaders to some ridiculous pedestal. Now, I don't know about former pastors. You guys know how messed up I am. I tell you guys all the time. But anyways, pastors, and I don't care how many doctorate degrees and masters in divinities they have, they're broken individuals just like you and I. They're normal people, and we've somehow elevated them to some superstar level, and we've done that to their detriment and, quite frankly, to a lot of ours but they share a humanity with us, or at least they should. Now, let's pick on Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest of the Jews, okay? There's this story in the book of Exodus. Aaron was the guy, he was Moses' brother, and he was left in charge whenever Moses would go up on Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is where Moses received the 15, oh no, 10 commandments, right? There's a Mel Brooks fan over here, that's good. Um, it's when Moses received the 10 commandments, came down from the mountain, Aaron had been left in charge, okay? Put yourself in this mindset. Moses just saw the hand of God inscribe the, the 10 fundamental laws into these tablets, gave them to Moses. He's coming down the mountain to share these with the people of Israel, the people of God. And what does he find them doing, right? They took off all their gold jewelry, melted it down in a fire, and they built this golden calf. I love in the old movies, the calf, like they're riding on this calf. They think the calf was about the size of a football. So, you know, so they had this, this gold calf that was about this big, and they're all worshiping this thing. Moses comes up to Aaron, the priest, and he's like, what happened here? And Aaron's response was essentially, uh, we just threw all this gold in a fire, and out came this golden calf. And Moses, you know, Moses probably didn't think that was funny, but um, he, was, he, he had mistakes. He buckled to the pressure of the people. He was a man, and because he was a man... He could sympathize, but we needed a perfect savior, not a human. We needed God wrapped up in flesh, the God man that is Jesus Christ. We needed a perfect savior to effectively deal with the sins and faults of humanity, therefore making Jesus the perfect high priest. Now, Jesus was also subject to weakness. Didn't mean he made mistakes, didn't mean he did anything wrong. Because Christ was fully God and fully man, he had a commonality with us. He suffered. He, he, he had even gone through death. Of course, he was resurrected. He had, had been mistreated. He had been spit upon. He had been made fun of. He had been neglected. 
He had to work like we have to work. He had to do all the things that we had to do. And so whenever we come to Christ and we say, God, you don't understand what it's like. He's like, yes, I do. I worked. I suffered. I had friends turn their back on me. He had all those things happen to him. But Jesus never sinned. He has commonality with us, but he was perfect. He was not only gentle to us and is to us, to the ignorant, to the broken, but he's able to fix us. He's able to heal our brokenness. And here's what we've done, though. Jesus has commonality with us because he, he lived as a human like, like we live, but he is superior to us. He's always superior. He is God. He's part of the Holy Trinity. He is God. And so what our culture has done and has continued to do is we try to reduce Jesus to just being like a really cool guy, just a good, good, good social activist. He was a good prophet, but he was not the son of God. He did work. He got hungry. He was tempted. He was ridiculed. He suffered on the cross. And this proves that he has commonality with us, but he stands in contrast because not only was he God, he never fell to temptation. And so what the priests of the Old Testament had to do, I find this fascinating. Again, let's say I'm the high priest and, and you're the children of Israel, the Jews, right? Before I made a sacrifice for your sin, I would have to go in front of God. I'd have to kill an animal, make an altar, sacrifice this, ask God to, to take care of all my, my screw-ups before I could pray for yours and before I could make a sacrifice for yours. Because Jesus had no sin, all of Jesus' energy was not on himself. All of his energy was solely on his people. He didn't have to waste time on dealing with his issues. He didn't have any issues. All of his energy, all of his sacrifice was solely for his people. He was perfect, amazing. And so the priests were chosen for their role. Typically in the Old Testament, this isn't the case with all the, the high priests, but typically the priests were chosen through a prophet by God he would select a high priest, but over time, the church, it was, it was religion, the church, the religion, and politics got intermingled. Church and politics have never been a good couple. I'm just going to throw that out there. It has always been bad. And so politics got into the church, and this produced kings choosing high priests of their choice that fit their needs and not letting God be the one to choose the high priest. And because of that, we had disasters like Saul in 1 Samuel. He was not a good guy, tried to kill David several times. There was a guy named Uzziah who rebelled against God and ended up receiving leprosy. God punished him for, him, for his rebellion. We had all these disasters. And so like Aaron, though, who was a righteous man, not a perfect man, Jesus was chosen by God to lead his people, but, but he was chosen in a different way and in a deeper way, not through a human order of people, but the author of Hebrews says, in the order of a guy named Melchizedek, or Mel Melchizedek, Ugh, messed that up a lot. Just call him Mel, right? So Mel is a mysterious king that briefly showed up in Genesis chapter 14. You can go back and read that today. It's, it's crazy. People have all kinds of theories about this high priest, this, this guy Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Some people think he's what's called a theophany. Now, if you've never heard that term before, it's fascinating. Several times in the Old Testament, there are physical manifestations of Jesus. That's called a theophany. Some people believe that this guy that, Ab that, that uh, Abraham met up with in Genesis chapter 14 was actually Jesus Christ. 
Fascinating. Now, some people believe he wasn't Jesus, but he was just a foreshadowing, kind of an archetype, a prototype of Jesus. Now, what makes it complicated, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about Hebrews 7, where it talks about this high priest again, and it says that this high priest had no mother and father, and that his priesthood would last forever. So if you take that literally, it might be a theophany. It doesn't matter. Either way, the point is, is that Jesus is going to be like this righteous, good leader. Now, the reason why this is even brought up is extremely important, and look at how this applies to our culture today. The recipients of Hebrews had not had an exemplary, righteous, God-fearing leader in generations. The politicians of their day and the religious leaders of their days were power-hungry and sought to be served instead of serving. Sound familiar? I pick on politics a lot. If you come to this church, I pick on politics a lot both sides because they've garnered a lot of picking on, in my opinion. So I pick on them a lot, right? Now, the church has also garnered some picking on. And, and what we've done in our day and age, and if I ever do this, you have my permission to punch me in the back of the head. Whenever these pastors make their name.com, whenever these pastors in these churches promote themselves more than they promote Jesus Christ, and whenever we let them do that, there is a problem. There is a problem. Now, the Apostle Paul, people would ask, well, would the Apostle Paul have his own website? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Whenever the Apostle Paul, who wrote 70% of the New Testament, started churches all over, uh, uh, all over Europe and all over uh, uh, Asia Minor, this guy who helped and aid and who knows how many Christians being converted and following Jesus Christ, whenever people would walk up to Paul and they say, hey, Paul, I follow you. My friend follows Apollos and my other friend follows Peter, different spiritual leaders, right? I'm a disciple of this person, this person, this person. Paul would always say, your friend doesn't follow Apollos or Peter. You don't follow me. We follow Jesus. That's who we follow. And so whenever these clowns start making it more about their brand of church and more about themselves than Jesus, we have a significant problem. There is a disconnect, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. So when the people of Hebrews heard, wow, we might have a leader that's not more concerned about themselves than, than everyone else, that's amazing. And they longed for that, and they wanted that kind of godly leadership. And so the high priest was called by God. Verse five that I just read is quoting Psalms two and it confirms that Christ was appointed by God to be our leader and savior and that his death, burial, and resurrection that we talked about last week was a plan that was orchestrated by God himself. Now Jesus didn't seek this out, but he didn't deny it. He didn't refuse it. He did exactly the will of the father. He was submissive to the father's will and that made him different from all other spiritual leaders we had then and that we will ever have. Unlike Aaron, or unlike any spiritual leader trusted by God, Jesus's leadership, his priesthood would never end. It would go on forever. It would be righteous. It would reconcile humanity with God the Father. And what Jesus essentially did, my favorite thing about Jesus, he broke every single expectation. Even to this day, a lot of the Jews neglect or, or they reject the idea of Jesus being the Messiah because he did not come the way they thought he would come. They thought he would come as a powerful military leader that would obliterate all their enemies. 
They thought maybe he would come as a crafty politician or a gaudy king wrapped up in gold and fine clothes. And that's not the way he came. He came as a guy that the Bible says wasn't even much to look at that people would desire him. Worked with his hands. He built things with wood and he did masonry work. That's the kind of work that Jesus, our Savior, did. That's the way God came to earth, humbly to serve mankind. It's still the problem with many people today. Jesus does not come to them the way they want him to come. He breaks their expectations. Nowadays, we want Jesus to approach us as some like herbal tea, you know, drinking hippie that just turns a blind eye to all of our things. Oh gosh, you know, as long as they're happy. That's the Jesus we want. And that is not the Jesus of the Holy Bible. The Jesus of the Bible said, I came to divide, not divide people, but to make a clear line in the sand that this is evil and this is good. That's what Jesus came to do. But that's not the way we want him. So, so many people neglect the Jesus of the Bible and they construct a Jesus in their own mind that does not align with this. Next part. We haven't even reached the sassy part. That's like in two more parts. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, here comes two very tricky things. Listen to this. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. And he was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's two things that come up. I'll get to it in a second. They're very complicated. Okay, so Christ has the ability to sympathize with us. That's very, very important. Because of the mental anguish that Jesus went through before he was arrested, if you go back and read the story before he was arrested and crucified, he was so stressed out that he was sweating blood, which is a real medical condition that people can have. He was sweating blood because he was so stressed. Not only the mental stress, but the physical torture and torment that he went through on the cross. Because we know that Jesus went through those things, we know that Jesus can sympathize with us. That's a big deal. If you study all world religions that exist right now, the only Savior that ever came, lived, died, rose again is Jesus Christ, and he's the only God that can sympathize with us. And so Jesus prayed to the Father for deliverance from death. And he was heard by the Father because he had reverence. He honored and respected God the Father. Jesus was also heard because he was submitted. That is a bad word in our culture. We never want to talk about submission. But Jesus's prayer was this, Father, if you're willing, take this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was Jesus's prayer. How often do you and I approach God and say, God, I want this, I need this, but nevertheless, your will, not mine. How often do we do that? Most of the time we approach God with our wants and needs, and if he doesn't answer them just like that, we're ticked off at God, right? We turn our back on God. And Jesus said, nevertheless, your will. He put his wants aside in order to live out the will of God, that the will of God would be completed in him and be completed through him. Jesus refused to take the easy way out. He refused to. He saw God's will and he pursued God's will unflinching. Pursued God's will until it was completely done. 
Now, the two things that are kind of, I say, confusing, they were for me at first. I think I get it now a little bit, but I had to study a little bit. There's one thing that was brought up. It said, though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience. Now, how does an all-knowing God learn things? That's kind of confusing. If you go into Luke chapter two, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom. How was he not always wise, right? I don't, I don't get that. So if Jesus shared God the Father's omniscience, the fact that he knew everything, how can Jesus learn anything? That's a decent question. I found a little bit of clarity, maybe, in Philippians 2.7. It says that when Jesus came to earth, that he took on the form of a servant, which means he, he could have possibly surrendered some of his abilities. That in the 33 years Jesus Christ was on earth, that maybe he sacrificed some of his abilities to know all and see all and, and be everywhere at all times. That maybe he sacrificed that, okay? Now, if you're, if you're not into that, if that doesn't work well for you, another idea is this. Some suggest that Jesus didn't surrender his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, that he didn't surrender all that, but he chose not to use those things unless he had consultation with the Father. Like, like an example, like he would pray to the Father and ask for these things, and Mark 13, 32 kind of sheds some light on that, that he was setting an example for us, that we're given abilities through the Holy Spirit, but we have to have consultation with God. Ultimately, it boils down to this. We're not going to know everything until we get to heaven. And I'm okay with that. I'm surprised that so many people come to this church because I often tell you how much I don't know. The more I study the Bible, the more I'm like, there's a lot I don't know. One of the things that I have a hard time wrapping my head around is the idea of the Holy Trinity of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons represented in one God. I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. Three and one are not the same number, so that, that's, that's hard for me to reconcile. It's hard for me to reconcile in my mind that a billion people can be praying to God simultaneously, and God gives every single one of them 100% of his attention. It doesn't make any sense to me. But if all of God made sense to me, he just wouldn't be God, right? And so when I get to heaven, we talked about this last week, who shot JFK, what's up with mosquitoes, and explain the Trinity to me. We'll figure all this out. <laughs> I'm, I'm making a list, right? So another theological thing that came up when I was studying that was kind of hard for me is it says that Jesus was perfected. Now, that's also interesting. Jesus has always been perfect, but verse 9 is not referring to the fact that he was imperfect and then perfect. It's referring to completion. There was these things that God the Father wanted him to do, and so by enduring the cross, Jesus brought God's plan to its fulfillment. That's what that word perfection means there, fulfillment or completion. He attained all the goals, and his obedience through the cross became our source of salvation. That's what that perfection means there. And so Jesus' salvation applies to all people who are obedient those who have faith and obey the instruction and example of Jesus Christ receive salvation by God's grace, not by anything we do, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, because we would brag. It's not by our works, but it's simply by faith through grace, God's grace, we are saved. Now, something, and, and we, I purposefully don't go into these waters a lot in this church, but there's one camp of Christian thought, and it's okay if, if you're a hardcore Calvinist or Reformed theologist in here, and if you don't know what those things are, it's totally okay. But there's five points of Calvinism, and there's a couple of those I can get behind. 
and agree with and say amen to. There's one because of this scripture and several others that I can point out that I cannot get behind. One of the tenets of Calvinism is limited atonement. What that means is that Jesus Christ did not die for everyone's sin, but only a select group of people. I do not agree with that. I believe salvation is available to all people, rich, poor, educated, simple, influential, and quote-unquote unimportant, because the one, who obeyed, the one who obeyed the Father has made salvation available to all those who obey the Father. That's what the Scripture says. I believe Jesus died for everyone's sins and everyone's salvation. Again, there's a comparison, though. We see it again in this part that I just read to this guy, Melchizedek. The author reminds us again that Jesus is similar or might even be this righteous high priest. Now, here's what's interesting. Instead of talking more about Mel, I couldn't fit it all in that part, so I, Mel. Instead of talking more about Mel, the author of Hebrews is going to take a detour. We're about to go a completely different direction, right? So everything we've just been talking about, like we're going to make like a hard left turn. He's going to make a hard detour. And what he's going to talk about in the last part of this chapter, in all of chapter six, is spiritual maturity. Now, we're about to get into that sassy part that I talked about. Before we get into that, though, to recap what I just talked about, Jesus is the perfect Savior. If you're studying world religions, go back and watch our Coexist series that we did. I, I, if you were here for that, it was a lot of fun. My friend Muhammad taught the one on Islam with me. Uh, fantastic. We talked about Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. We talked about atheism, agnosticism. It was a great series. Go back and watch those. But if you compare Jesus to all other world religions, he is superior in the fact that he has sympathy for his people. Sympathy for his people. He also was the perfect example a perfect example of reverence to God, obedience to God, and maturation, maturing, growing closer to God. And when we see Jesus' example, we are to emulate that. Listen, that's why we're called Christians, followers of Jesus. We're to learn to walk like Jesus walked. And so we are to emulate his example, okay? Next part, it gets sassy from the get-go. You ready? We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. So if you receive this letter and you're reading it in front of a crowd, right? All the Hebrews, whoever this was going to, we don't know who it went to. You're reading this, and you're just like, man, yeah, Jesus, yeah, 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 yeah. And you get to this part, and you're just like, oh, God just called us lazy. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. He just called us babies. But solid food is for the mature, for those, listen to this, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Now, guys, just a preface. I'm going to get a little heated about some of this stuff. And it's not because I don't love you. It's because I love you a lot. The Bible is only difficult to digest if we make it difficult to digest. Now, I know there's complicated parts. Daniel, we just did one, right? Revelation. I know Ezekiel. Books like that are kind of difficult to process. But the author takes, this author, takes direct aim at all followers of Jesus and he 
tackles their struggle to grow in understanding, not because they're not intelligent, but because they have become too lazy to even try. The author is not attacking the fact that they're not smart. He's attacking the fact that they don't, they don't have the willingness to learn the basic things of Jesus. Billy Graham said that you can take the most ignorant base individual, give them a Bible, lock them in a room, or put them in the wilderness for a couple of days, and they will come out of that with no outside help except for the Word. They will come out of that at least having a basic understanding of the workings of the Bible at least a basic understanding of the word. And I believe that to be true. One of our problems though, if we're gonna be honest with each other today, is quite frankly, our culture has a huge problem with authority. Young people in this room, we live in right now, in my opinion, this generation, the 20-somethings in this room and the 20-somethings around our world are probably the most intelligent generation that's ever existed extremely smart, extremely intelligent, unbelievable untapped potential. They're also probably some of the laziest generation that it's been around since I've been alive. It's so hard to motivate them. And and this falls with Christians too. Jeremiah 6.10 says this, the word of the Lord has become contemptible to them. They find no pleasure in the word of God. That's not just with 20-somethings. There's 50-year-olds in this room who find no pleasure in breaking open the word of God. This refers to people that have no desire to learn the truth because if they learn the truth, the truth will encroach on their lifestyle. Listen, we're going to be honest. I'll be honest with you. I feel like I always am. There are parts of the Bible that are exceptionally offensive to me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Make that your homework. Take you 30 seconds to read that passage. It gives a laundry list of things that will prohibit people from entering in the kingdom of God. We don't like to touch that. Most people don't like to teach the Word of God chapter by chapter, line by line, because there's stuff in there that will tick you off. There's stuff in there that doesn't line up well with the way I want to live. It tells us how to spend... Let me tell you, if you're, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I just want to be upfront with you. If you choose to accept Christ into your life, genuinely choose, Jesus gets into all of your business. He gets into your relationships, he gets into your finances, he gets into your sex life, he gets into your leisure time, he gets into every part of you because he wants a deep, 100% committed relationship with his followers. And so when you get into that relationship, you need to know going into this that God wants all of you and he gets his hands in every single corner of your life. Our problem though, is we face a crisis in our day and age of narcissism. This isn't just non-believers. This is believers too. And I'm not trying to make fun of you or pick on you. The word of the year in Webster's Dictionary in 2013 was selfie. Now look, if you're taking, if you take selfies, I'm not making funny. I take them sometimes. And then I'm like, dear God, that's my nose. And then I don't take any for a long time. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm not making fun of you if you take selfies. But if there's 3,000 pictures on your Facebook of just you, Like, we have counselors for that, right? I mean, there's an issue there. And it's happened in the church as well. We've made it all about us. Again, there's church leaders. And guys, if there's any church that has gone to any lengths to connect churches in this city, it's this one. We've gone to unbelievable lengths. And you wouldn't believe how much of a pain in the butt it is to even get a pastor on the phone of a church a quarter of this size. You wouldn't believe how hard it is. Some of the most narcissistic people I've ever met are pastors. 
and it is extremely hard. And what we've done is we've taken the very fundamentals of Jesus' teachings, that the first will be last and the last will be first, and we've completely ignored it. Be first in line. Do everything you can to make sure you're the rock star. Make sure you do everything you can to be first. And Jesus taught the exact opposite. Jesus said, when you go into a banquet and all the tables are set up, sit towards the back. Because if they ask you to move forward, you'll feel honored. But if you sit up towards the front and they ask you to move back, you're going to feel foolish. In other words, Jesus said, be humble. It's not all about you. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's all about him. So narcissism, yeah, narcissism has bred in us, I'm talking about the church, guys, it has bred in us a shallow faith. What the author of Hebrews said is he looked at these followers. This is 40 years after Jesus died, this book was written, 40 years. Some of these people had probably been Christians for decades, and he looked at them and he said, by this time, you guys should be teaching. By this time, you should be out spreading the gospel, but you still need someone to teach you, not just teach you the complicated things, but teach you the very simple standards that God has given us. And so what he's doing is he's digging at him. He's poking at him. Man, the Bible does that often. Now listen, Jesus doesn't beat us up. He's trying to pull us up. He's trying to get us to recognize our potential. He's trying to get us to stand up. God looks at us through the prophets, through the writers, through the, the disciples in the New Testament. And he's saying, step up. You're more valuable than that. You're smarter than that. You're better than that. Step up. So not only did these people fail to grow in their faith, they had forgotten the basic principles. Basic principles. Can I, you guys know I don't like politics. Let me, let me get political here just for a second. Most of the time when I ask people, who, you, know, you know, who are you interested in politically and why do you like this individual? Most of the time it's what we can get out of it, Right? I want to vote for the person that's going to take stuff away from that guy because he has too much and they're going to give it to me. Listen, if we rob from the rich to, to give to the poor, we're still stealing. And that's a Ten Commandment. We're also being envious and we're being covetous. That's another Ten Commandment. And so a lot of Christians have lost the very basic fundamentals of who we're supposed to be. If your neighbor has a nicer car than you, just be happy that God has blessed them. If your neighbor has a bigger house, just be just be happy that God has blessed them and be content. If you made it here today and you have breath in your lungs, you and I have more than we've ever earned, ever earned. And we've become covetous and we've become envious. And we have forgot the very basic tenets that God wrote down on some pieces of rock for Moses. We've forgotten those things. We've also forgotten that there are only two directions. We are either gravitating towards Jesus or we are moving away from him. There is no pause. There is no neutral. You're either for me, Jesus said, or you are against me. There's only two choices. I don't agree with everything this individual says, but he wrote a couple of great books when he first started his ministry, a guy named Rob Bell. And he said a thing where he says, everything is spiritual. Everything you do is spiritual. It's either moving you closer to Jesus or it's pulling you away from him. A great theologian, Thomas Hewitt, said this. You need to circle this in your notes or... You know, if you're Drake, you'll get it tattooed on your arm or something. But uh, theologian Thomas Hewitt said this, if the dark things do not become plain, then the plain things will become dark. How great is that? If the dark things do not become plain, then the plain things will become dark. And so the analogy that the author of Hebrew uses, for, for individuals like me, I just need it broken down simple, Right? 
This is what he says. The metaphor of drinking milk versus eating meat or eating solid food. It points to the obvious malnourishment. We all know, if you've had kids in here, your kids get older, and you remember the first time you feed them solid foods, and you're like, and then they eat it, and you're like, all right. Start shoving all kinds of stuff in there, right? As your kids get older, they start moving on to solid food. It's just natural. As you get bigger, you mature, and you eat different things. It's the same way spiritually. And so he uses this analogy. And so the problem is, is if we're narcissistic, if that's the cancer, if that's the sickness, the result of that is immaturity and it's a disinterest to even want to grow. It's like wanting to remain infantile forever. I never want to get bigger. I never want to move on from the milk and eat solid food. I just want to stay this way. And what happens is if we stay infantile in our spiritual development, we don't know what's good and we don't know what's bad. I know kids kind of instinctively know good and bad to a certain extent, but it's up to the parent to teach them, this is right, this is wrong, grow up. The Bible says once I, Paul says once I acted like a young man, but now I've grown up, I've matured, so now I act like a full-grown man. And the recipients of Hebrews, including us, we're recipients of this book of the Bible as well. We must choose to mature. We must choose to, as he says, train ourselves to know good from evil. Now, this doesn't come from just like this sudden burst of insight. One day you're sleeping and you wake up and you're just like, I got it. This is good. This is bad. It comes through using the resources that God has given us, like coming to church. Church is not our God. God is God. But we come to church and we hear teaching and we get instruction and we have accountability. We have people here to help us, to call us out. We use that resource. We have the Holy Bible. If you're curious to know what God thinks about things, here it is. I had lunch with a guy the other day. Um, um, he's actually in the room right now. But we were talking about a friend of his that's from Egypt and how his friend came over from Egypt, a Coptic Christian. Do you know how they treat Coptic Christians in Egypt? They crucify him, literally, just like Jesus. They crucify him. Now, it's happening right now. Once upon a time, there was more monasteries in Egypt than anywhere else in the world. Now the Christian population in Egypt is about 8% because they're literally killing them all. So most of the places where you go get euros, they're not gyros, they're euros, where you go get euros... Most of the people who serve you your euros are Coptic Christians who fled Egypt to come here because we have religious freedom, right, that we take for granted. And so this young man from Egypt talks about, he comes over here where people are dying, literally dying, so they can read this book. You come to the United States where we have them all over the place and no one picks it up. Isn't that crazy? And so we have the Bible at our disposal, we have prayer time that we need to have. If you're not sure about everything in here, ask God to give you clarity. Ask God to convict you. Let me be legalistic for a second. As we grow closer to Christ, you should have more conviction as time goes on than less. You should be more sensitive to things, more spiritually in tune, more aware of what you listen to and read and watch more aware of who hangs out with you and your family. You should be more aware of those things the closer we get to Christ, not less. There's all these resources that God has given us, and we are to use these things in order to distinguish good from evil. And if we diligently seek the truth and seek God, we will be dramatically changed. We will diligently change. We choose to mature in our relationship with the Creator. And we also make this choice not because it just affects us. Guys, you have no idea how many people are affected by your walk or lack of walk with Jesus. You have no idea. Let me tell you a story. 
My grandfather, he's, he's passed away now. Both my, all my grandparents have passed away, but my, my grandfather on my dad's side, I was very close to, more than I ever was my dad or anyone else in my dad's family. I was very close to my grandfather. David was his name. Very close to him. He started churches in St. Louis. He started churches in Jefferson City and Kansas City, kind of like all parts of Missouri. He started churches. The only other church planter in my whole family besides me, me and my, my grandfather. He died about six months after I started this church. Um, but I would talk with him a lot, and I was very close with him. And what my grandfather used to do, he started a church in an area called Spanish Lake. It's North County, St. Louis, north of St. Louis, right? Started this church. And back in the day, they didn't have like bus ministries like we have now. They just couldn't afford all these buses and stuff, and they couldn't do that. So what my grandfather did, he was all into Cadillacs and Lincoln Continentals, because that's what pastors drove, right? These big old, big old cars, right? Play like soccer on the hood. So... Um, my grandfather would get in his big old Lincoln Continentals or his big old Cadillacs, and the pastor of the church would go around to all the neighboring areas, and he would pick up kids whose parents wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't take them to church. So my grandfather, the pastor, would, would throw all these kids, seven or eight kids in, in, this, in this Cadillac, and he just, you know, back in the days when cops would like let you like sleep in the back of the car, you guys remember that? Up on the back uh, dash area thing, and, and so he'd pile all these kids in there, and he'd bring them to church get them all into their Sunday school classes, throw on his tie real quick, and he'd go preach. That's what he did. One of the kids that my grandfather picked up all the time was a kid named Curtis Howard. Curtis, I keep picking on Corey. He, he looked like Corey Drake, like, like greased his hair back and was like one of those like kids in the 50s that, you know, like rolled up his cigarettes and on his sleeve and all that stuff and, and uh, picked up Curtis Howard, right? Curtis Howard was this punk kid in a bad neighborhood. Would pick him up every single Sunday, did this for years. As Curtis got older and older, when he turned 16, my grandfather got him a car and like just really mentored this one kid, Curtis Howard, like, like just, just as time went on. Curtis Howard started a bus ministry at that church, and so he became the one to start picking people up. Curtis eventually moved to Jackson, Tennessee from St. Louis, moved to Jackson. Started the first homeless ministry in Jackson, Tennessee. Started reaching out to hundreds and hundreds of homeless people. Not just that, he started a very, very thriving bus ministry. They would send out whole buses, school buses, all over Jackson, Tennessee, and pick up hundreds and hundreds of kids and bring them to church. So the diligence, the hard work, the maturity of one, one man, my grandfather, good man, my grandfather, didn't just affect one life. There's no telling how many tens of thousands of people through generations and generations and generations and generations who were positively affected because they were diligent in their pursuit of the truth. You have no idea if you are diligent and if you are pursuing God, you have no idea the ramifications that are going to follow that. You have no idea what kind of ripples and what kind of wake is going to come from you running after God. Listen, on the flip side of that, you have no idea how much negative things can happen if you don't. You have no idea how many families will be divided and how much drama and turbulence will happen around you and after you if you don't pursue God. Men, you need to diligently pursue him because your family depends on it. Your marriage depends on it. Your grandchildren that you don't have yet depend on it. Generations way after that depend on it. There's a lot of weight on our shoulders. But if we pursue him, Jesus gives us peace. He gives us joy. He gives us fulfillment. This is good news that we are to share. We're to share the things that God has done with our families, with our friends, with our neighbors, so all of them can experience it, and it can trickle down generations through their, their families and their friends and their neighbors. On and on and on it goes. You have no idea what one life can do and how much it can ripple through. Now, let me, let me leave you with this. This is my last slide. I want you to know that maturity is a choice. 
You have to choose to train yourself, and I have to choose to train myself to distinguish good from evil. The first thing that a mature believer does is they know what is good and what is not good. And if you're curious about that, or if you don't know, again, there are multiple places in the Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and look at that list. It's a negative list. It's all the things that will keep you out of the kingdom of God. It's very direct. It's very blunt. It's very plain. But if you want to know what is right and what is wrong, the Bible is very clear on that, and a mature Christian seeks that out. A mature Christian doesn't just identify this is good and this is bad. A mature Christian knows to stay away from what is bad and to move towards what is good. Oftentimes, we know what's right and wrong, right, most of us, but we don't do it. Or we do things that we know are displeasing to God. A wise Christian knows that all things may be permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Now listen, it's not a sin to drink alcohol. It's not a sin. If you drink alcohol, there's nothing in the Bible that says that's wrong. I choose not to, not because I think it's a sin, but because I used to struggle with addiction. Wisdom says that though you may be able to do it and it's permissible, it's not beneficial for me. So I'm not going to do it. I saw what it did to, to some of my mom's family. I saw what it did to some of my friends. I saw what it's done to some of you. And so I stay away from it. We just keep it away from us. And wisdom is the one that helps you avoid certain things and gravitate towards healthier things. Maturity also learns proper theology. I'm not talking about arguing with your friends over predestination or free will. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about good theology. Maturity wants to dive into how does God think? How does God want us to think? How do we apply these things? What's important to Jesus? Are we doing those things? Are we neglecting other things? We need to know good theology and we need to apply it. Maturity, a Christian who is mature in their faith, also has a strong work ethic. We know, a mature believer knows, that this life is like a vapor. It comes out and then it's gone. It dissipates. We know that our days are numbered and we know that we are not promised tomorrow. So we work hard today. We work hard today. We know that we are to diligently go after those who are lost in order to share the love of Christ with them, share the gospel with them. We know that we are to work hard. Of course, we need to rest. We talked about that last week a little bit. We know we need to rest, but we know we need to work hard because there is a lost world around us. We know we need to work hard at being the moms and the dads and, and the family that we need to be. We know we need to work hard in being a good representation of Jesus in our city. That when that yard day comes up this month, I hope I see a lot of you. I hope there's too many of you. I hope that we can expand and do all these yards well because we need to be a good representation. We need to work hard. We need to have a strong work ethic, and we don't need to give up so easily. You need to pick up the book, The Bait of Satan. It's about being offended. We get offended way too easily. Well, I'm not going to that church because there's a hypocrite at that church. Do you go to work because there's hypocrites there too? Do you go out to eat? I'm sure there's hypocrites in that restaurant. Don't give up so easily, guys. Don't be so critical. Don't be offended so easily. Guys, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let, let you know. I'm gonna say things wrong. I'll probably say things you don't even agree with sometimes. Give me another chance, right? Do you want me to show that kind of grace to you? Hasn't God shown that kind of grace to us? Let's be gracious. Let's have some stamina. Let's have some long suffering. The last one is this. A mature Christian relentlessly pursues the truth regardless of what it's going to tell you. 
If you get into that Bible deep enough, I give you my word, you're going to find something that just doesn't jive well with you. You're going to. But the mature believer looks at that and says, God, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What we've done in our culture is we've wanted to make God in our image. And the Bible says that we are made in His image. We are to conform to His ways, not to the ways of the world. And a mature believer steps back and says, I don't like that, but it's God's will and I'm going to do that. That's what a mature believer does. Listen, I probably don't say it enough. You have no idea how much I love you. There are a lot of you in this room that I haven't met yet. But not just me, the leadership of this church would go to any length we possibly can for you and for your family. I love this church family. I know we're growing. I know it's different. I know that we don't all know each other anymore. But we've got to keep our eyes focused on Him. We've got to grow in our faith. We've got to, 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 we've got to understand that it's not about just me. It's about my city. It's about my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about those who do not know Him yet. It's about these neighbors around us. It's about doing what is best so the kingdom of God can grow. Do you know right now Murfreesboro is only about 32% Christian? That's how many actually go to church. That's assuming that all people that go to church have a strong relationship with Jesus. If you couldn't see me on that side, I rolled my eyes. <laughs> but only 32% of our city even goes to church. Now, that's dramatically high compared to the rest of the country. That's only 32%. That's not winning, guys. It needs to, we're not even half. That's bad. We have a lot of work ahead of us. And I love you so much. And I hope you never think that I'm trying to beat you up. That is, I, I have no right to condescend or to talk down to you. I just want us all to step up. We have to step up. I love you. Let me pray for you, okay? Before I pray, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just want to tell you, there's communion on the right and left. Um, everyone be patient. We're, we're building more tables for that. But that communion on the right and left represents the body and the blood of Jesus. Everyone is welcome to take that as long as you have asked God to forgive you of your sins. That's available for you. you got as much time as you want. Please be respectful of people in the room. But you can pray. You can get on your knees. You can, we actually have space now. You can do that. Make yourself at home. If you're not taking communion or if you're taking communion but you, you still need this, there'll be people on my left, your right, that will pray for you. If you need prayer for anything, there's men and women up here. If you're not a believer in here and if you have any questions or if you're just struggling with faith, come up here and just, just ask a question or let some of these people uh, talk to you for a little bit. They'd love to. And for those of you who are Christians in here, but maybe you haven't grown to the level that you need to, it's okay. God's gracious, but now it's time to get to work. Father, we love you. We thank you. God, I pray that everyone who can hear my voice right now, I just pray that you bless them. Lord, raise us up. God, move us from the, the, from the shallow waters to the deep end. God, it's only by your Holy Spirit, Lord, but I know that you'll keep us afloat. I know, Lord, that you'll give us strength. God, take us down that journey. We love you, God, and we, we, we just lift you up and we praise you. If there's anyone in this room who struggles with faith or is not a Christian, I pray, God, that you just simply spark something in them that has an interest. And God, give us wisdom as a church uh, uh, to answer whatever questions they may have. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's people on the right and left of me if you need prayer. You guys are welcome to help yourself.